Hi everyone, welcome to another one of the Branch online sermons. If you're just joining us today, then we're in week two of a series that we're doing in the book of First Thessalonians. And today we're looking at First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 to 16. If you haven't read those verses, you might like to pause the video and do that now. Well, you're probably familiar with the idea of the pub test. It's a pretty Aussie term. You know, a politician will say or do something, make some new policy or something like that, and you'll often hear it being described in terms of whether or not it would pass the pub test. That is, what would the average punter down at the pub think of this thing that the politicians just said or done? Has the politician been genuine? Are they acting in the best interests of the people? Do they pass the pub test? Well, in the same way that you can apply a pub test to something a politician says or, do, uh, or does, we can also apply a bit of a pub test to gospel ministry. What kind of gospel ministry passes the pub test? And in Thessalonians chapter 2, the verses we're looking at today, we're given a description of gospel ministry that passes the pub test with flying colours. But it's more than just passing the pub test. That's actually really a trivial way of putting it. The description of Paul's ministry that we get in these verses sets the benchmark for gospel ministry in general. It's the standard that people in vocational ministry should be aiming for. But it goes beyond people in vocational ministry too. The description of Paul's ministry in this chapter is really just a description of a gospel-shaped life. It's a description of the kind of life that we all want to imitate as we seek to live with and minister to one another and the people around us. So let's take a look. The first thing we see is that genuine gospel ministry doesn't stem from error or impure motives. We see that at the start of the chapter. Paul writes to the Thessalonians and says, You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. And then he says, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. Paul goes on to unpack that. He says in the following verses that he and his co-workers weren't after money, so they didn't put a mask to cover up greed. They weren't trying to please people or get praise from them, so they didn't try to flatter anyone. And they weren't after power. They didn't throw their weight around with the Thessalonians. They could have. They were apostles entrusted by God with the true message of the gospel. But they didn't do any of those things because their motives were pure. But how could the Thessalonians know that for sure? Well, before they visited Thessalonica, Paul and his co-workers had been in Philippi preaching the gospel, and that got them in trouble. 
Paul and Silas were arrested and falsely accused before a magistrate and beaten and put in prison. Their ministry in Philippi, Paul says, had had led to them being treated outrageously. And after they were miraculously released from prison and sent on their way from Philippi, they came to Thessalonica. And you can kind of imagine them on the road, walking to Thessalonica, having like a debrief, almost like a team meeting, and saying, what we did in Philippi really got us in trouble. Do you think we should change our approach in Thessalonica? Tweak the message a little bit. But that's not what they did. Instead, with the help of God, they just kept on sharing the gospel, kept on proclaiming that Jesus is the saviour of the world who suffered and died for sin and who rose again, called people to repent and believe in him. And the fact that they did that is proof that their motives were pure. There was was a connection between Paul's methods and his motives. He did something that he knew wasn't going to make him rich, It wasn't going to flatter people or or win praise from them. In fact, he knew that he was probably going to face opposition, which is in fact what happened. If his motives weren't right, it's likely that he would have changed his methods. But with the help of God, he just kept on sharing the gospel. You can imagine how tempting it would have been for Paul to do things differently. Just tweak the message a bit tell people something a bit more flattering, butter them up. He could have gained a little posse of people, thrown his weight around as an apostle, asked people for money to support his ministry and and got rich. He could have done those things. We see the same kind of thing happening all the time in our day and age. Sometimes it, it, it springs from error. And sadly, you have to say that sometimes... It appears to spring from impure motives. Preachers who tell people that what God wants for them is to be happy and healthy and successful and wealthy in this life. And the preacher's proof of that. He's got a multi-million dollar mansion, jet planes. And how does he fund that lifestyle? Well, he tells his people, you you give money to my ministry. It'll be like an investment. You give in faith and you'll receive in faith. God will give you back 10 times the amount of money that you give to my ministry. Now, that clearly doesn't pass the pub test. But there's more subtle versions of that kind of thing as well. A kind of preaching that, that flatters people makes it all about you and your success. It's all about winning or breaking through or something. God's role in your life is to get all the obstacles out of the way so that you can break through and become the best and the the truest version of yourself. It's just, it's a subtle twist of real biblical truth, but it turns it into error. And it sounds so good. It's actually quite flattering to listen to. You can imagine people coming away feeling empowered and fired up. 
But so often that kind of approach lacks anything about the holiness of God or sin or repentance. There's nothing about suffering or counting the cost. The gospel kind of goes missing. Of course, it's easy to look at different ministries out there, but there's a warning here for us too. It can be so easy to try and fall into the trap of trying to please people. We want people to be impressed. So this year, instead of having a gospel message at Christmas, we're going to put on a production, a stage show. Impress people enough that they want to come back. Or if we do preach the gospel, make sure we tone it down a bit. Go easy on issues like sin and judgment and the need for repentance. Now, of course, there's room for nuance and for doing things to try and connect with people. But we just need to be really careful about our motives because our motives affect our methods. Are we just trying to please people or flatter them? Are we just trying to get people in the door for the sake of it? If our motives are wrong, then we'll be more inclined to stray into error and drift away from the primary importance of just sharing the gospel. Not just as, as churches and, and church ministries, but as individuals too. If we're motivated by pleasing people or making sure everyone likes us, then we'll be far less inclined to speak up and share our faith, share the gospel. We need to be careful about our motives because genuine gospel ministry doesn't spring from error or impure motives. But it does spring from love and care for other people. And that's the second thing that we see in our text. That gospel ministry is a labour of love. Look with me from the second half of verse 7. Paul writes to the Thessalonians that just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. What did that look like? Well, it, it looks like hard work. In verse 9, Paul reminds the Thessalonians of his toil. He devoted time and energy into to earning his own living while he was with them, so he wasn't a burden on anyone. And with the time he had left, he preached the gospel. All of that was a labour of love. Paul and his team loved the Thessalonians, not just a wishy-washy feeling, although emotions are involved. You get the sense of Paul's deep care and concern for people, but his love was more than a feeling. It was a love that moved him to action. The kind of love, he says, the kind of love and care that a nursing mother has for a newborn baby. Mums are like the ultimate example of a labourer of love, aren't they? Caring for kids, especially newborns, is hard work. Mum has so many demands placed on it. 
There's a very real sense in which her time, her headspace, her body even, her whole life isn't really her own in him, her own anymore. She, she's got to share her whole life with this baby. But it's a mother's love that drives her to keep going. The, the feeling that she has for that tiny human is a feeling of deep love and care and responsibility. And so she's attentive and tender and gentle. And because of her deep love, it's actually a delight for her in some ways to care for that baby and to be, to be sharing her life. And Paul said that that is the kind of love and care that he had for the Thessalonians. But Paul wasn't just like a mum, he was like a dad too. He liked to mix his metaphors. In the same way that a dad deals with his kids, being tender by encouraging and comforting them, but also being firm by urging them to do the right thing, live the right way. In the same way that a dad deals with his kids, Paul dealt with the Thessalonians. And he wasn't like a dad that says one thing and does the other. He was holy, righteous and blameless. None of the Thessalonians could look at him and point out any kind of serious moral failings or times where he was a hypocrite. And all of this combined, the love of a mother, the care of a father, holiness, righteousness, blamelessness, it presents us with a really high view of gospel ministry. It's a labour of love. That's a real challenge to anyone who is in vocational ministry or who's thinking about it. It, it sets the benchmark. It's the kind of ministry that I should be aiming at, or Steve or Carl. But it's not just about vocational ministry. Paul's labour of love provides a model for all of us as we seek to do that one another ministry that we're all called to. It's worth asking yourself the question, do you love people enough to share your life with them? Even when it's inconvenient, even when it's hard work. We're such an individualistic society that the idea of really sharing our lives with anyone beyond our families is, it can be kind of foreign to us. But what a powerful witness it is to the outside world when we do love and care for each other enough to, to share life together. Jesus said, by this you will know, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That love for one another is expressed in sharing life together. Love that leads to us sharing our lives, going all in on on life together, that's attractive to outsiders. It's the kind of gospel-shaped life that really passes the pub test, so to speak. Do we love each other enough to be people who encourage and comfort each other? People who urge each other to live lives worthy of God? going out of your way to send a text or make a phone call to someone you know who might need might be in need of encouragement or comfort, catching up with them 
encouraging them with words from the Bible, praying with and for them. That's gospel ministry. And it springs from love. And so does urging each other to live lives worthy of God. It's so easy not to do that. You know, after church, it's, it's so much easier to just talk about the footy or some other surface level topic. It can be awkward to, to go deeper, to, to lean into conversations. But real love embraces and overcomes that awkwardness. Loving people can look like asking them straight up questions like, how's your spiritual life going lately? Or what sort of things has God been teaching you? What have you been reading in the Bible? Or what have you been praying about? Loving people looks like asking them those sort of questions. And loving people looks like urging them to keep going, keep up their devotional life, keep fighting sin, keep seeking after God, keep living as a godly husband or wife or parent or child or friend or or whatever it might be. Do you love each other enough to, to share your life with them? Do you love people enough to encourage and comfort and urge them onwards? When I ask myself those questions... The answers aren't always what they should be. And the way to deal with that is through the gospel, to bring my lack of love to God and say, God, please forgive me through Jesus. Thank you that Jesus is full of love and care and that he deals with me gently. Thank you that he died to pay for this very sin. And please help me by the power of your spirit to love people more to care for them, to work hard. Please give me love and wisdom to know what to say to people, to encourage them and comfort them and urge them onwards. Gospel ministry doesn't stem from error or impure motives. Gospel ministry is a labour of love. And finally, gospel ministry gets God-given results. That's the third thing we see in our text, that gospel ministry gets God-given results. In verse 1, Paul said that his visit to the Thessalonians wasn't without results. What were those results? Well, look at verse 13. Paul says to the Thessalonians, We thank God continually because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same thing those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and also drove us out. In chapter 1, we saw how the gospel had come to the Thessalonians, not just with words, but with power and deep conviction. They became imitators of Paul by welcoming the gospel with joy, even in the midst of suffering. And these verses echo that same truth. When the Thessalonians heard the word that Paul spoke to them, 
it wasn't just a human word, but they accepted it as the very word of God. God worked through that simple means of sharing the gospel. Nothing fancy, nothing flashy, just sharing the gospel. The word of God became powerfully at work in the Thessalonians' lives. And the evidence of that was given in the fact that they were willing to suffer for their faith. Notice that verse 14 starts with the word for. Paul knows that God is at work in the Thessalonians for because they suffered. And their suffering was kind of on the cards right from the very beginning. The churches in Judea, where the gospel had first spread, had all suffered persecution at the hands of the Jews. And everywhere the gospel spread, suffering seemed to follow. Suffering followed Paul's ministry to Thessalonica. It came in the form of a a rioting mob who effectively drove him out of town. The mob came after him. They rocked up on a guy called Jason's doorstep looking for Paul and Silas to do who knows what to them. But they didn't find them. So they dragged Jason out of his house along with some others and brought them before the city officials. Scary stuff. And there's no reason to assume that that kind of thing stopped after Paul left town. This young church was doing it tough. Social pressure, physical violence, you name it, they were probably copying it. The results of Paul's ministry to them, the evidence of God's work in their lives was that they were suffering. It was a familiar pattern back then, and it's a pattern that hasn't changed. Just in the past week, we've heard from one of our overseas missionaries. A couple of months ago, he shared the gospel with a guy he bumped into on the street, and that guy believed. He accepted the gospel, not as a human word, but as the word of God. And since then, he's been sharing the word boldly with others. But just about a week ago, he he was arrested and badly beaten by the police with sticks. And the police tried to make him renounce his faith. But he didn't renounce. And he's since spoken about his joy and deep gospel conviction. God's word is at work in him. Thank God for that. And thank God for countless brothers and sisters all over the world who are willing to suffer for their faith. They're a model for us to imitate. We can learn so much from them. The threat of being arrested and beaten isn't immediate for us. It's kind of foreign to us. But you have to say... It's not inconceivable, even in our lifetime. The trajectory in the West has moved against the gospel so quickly over the past 10 years, and there's nothing to say that it won't keep heading in that direction. The ridicule directed at Christians keeps getting stronger, especially on platforms like social media. There's pressures at work for people with gospel convictions. It looks like it's going to get harder for for Christian health professionals and Christian business owners. 
Christians are increasingly becoming the subject of lawsuits and anti-discrimination claims. And if the current trajectory continues, then what we're seeing now is just the beginning. That raises a couple of questions for us. The first one being, are we prepared? Is the word of God so at work in our lives that we're prepared to suffer for the gospel? The second question to ask is, what do we do in the face of suffering? Well, we take our cues from Paul and from the Thessalonian church. What did Paul do? Well, he went on sharing the gospel, even in the face of strong opposition. He loved and cared for people, shared his life with them, encouraged and comforted them and urged them to to live lives worthy of God. What did the Thessalonians do? Well, they became imitators of Paul and the other churches in Judea. Paul's ministry to them got results. They they welcomed the gospel with joy in the midst of suffering. They loved each other and laboured for each other. They endured because their hope was in the Lord Jesus. So what do we do in the face of suffering? If people from church start losing their jobs and losing their homes, if we start getting sued or arrested even, Well, we pray that God would so work in us by his word so that we can become imitators of Paul and of the Thessalonians. We go on loving each other, sharing our lives with each other, encouraging and comforting each other, spurring each other on. We go on sharing the gospel. We pray that God would continue to raise up gospel workers who who boldly proclaim the gospel, even in the face of opposition. We do it all trusting that God will work out the results, trusting that God works in and through us to achieve his purposes. We do it all putting our hope in the Lord Jesus, who died and rose again, and who saves us from the coming wrath. That kind of gospel ministry and gospel-shaped life won't only pass the pub test, but by God's grace, it will see us through the test and the trials of suffering. We'll be kept by God all the way to glory as he works through the ordinary means of gospel ministry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and for those who minister that to us. Lord, thank you for those who have been set aside to uh, speak your word and proclaim and preach the gospel. We pray that you would uh, bless them and enable them to persevere and bear fruit, that their uh, speaking your word would get results. Uh, Lord, we know it's you that gives results. It's uh, you that makes uh, the seeds grow. And we pray that you would do that both here in this place uh, and in every place that the gospel is shared. Lord, please help all of us by your word and by your spirit 
to go on loving and caring for one another, sharing our life together. Lord, knit us together as a loving community of people who minister to each other by your word. Lord, we pray this especially as we see things like suffering on the horizon for us. Lord, help us to to know what it looks like now and to put into practice what it looks like now to be a community of people who really minister to each other and love each other so that we will be prepared uh, in the day of suffering. Lord, we pray this not just for our sake, uh, but for the sake of your great name, for the sake of your glory, and so that many others might see and come and uh, taste the goodness of the gospel and put their hope in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.